Anyhow, take your Bibles tonight and turn with me to Psalms chapter 11. This is a Psalm of David, and uh, we're going to be reading from there tonight. And uh, I do thank the Lord for the opportunity to be able to pre- to preach the Word of God, and uh, Brother Wagner giving me the uh, opportunity to, to preach. We're going to wait for Daniel to get a get our uh, uh, slideshow up here tonight. So. We're going to be preaching tonight on where do you stand. As you can see, this man here is standing uh, a little dangerously. I can't really tell what's on the other side, but uh, it's a little bit too dangerous for me. I wouldn't be standing up there for sure. I don't know about you, but uh, he acts like he's got all the courage in the world. But we want to go to Psalms chapter 11 here, and uh, we'll go ahead and uh, I've got it up here on the board. I don't know if you can read that or not, but it's a Psalm of David. And David writes, In the Lord put I my trust. How say ye to my soul, flee as a bird to your mountain? For lo, the wicked bend their bow, they make ready their arrow upon the string, that they may privately shoot at the upright in heart. Here's our main verse tonight. If the foundations be destroyed, what can the righteous do? The Lord is in his holy temple. The Lord's throne is in heaven. His eyes behold, his eyelids try the children of men. The Lord trieth the righteous, but the wicked in him that loveth violence, his soul hateth. Upon the wicked he shall rain snares, fire and brimstone, and a horrible tempest. This shall be the portion of their cup. For the righteous the Lord, I'm sorry, for the righteous Lord loveth righteousness. His countenance behold the upright. And of course, I said our main verse tonight is the foundations be destroyed. What can the righteous do? If we look at America today, we can say the same thing that David is saying here today. We can look at what's going on in America. We can see that our foundations are being destroyed. We can see a lot of things that are going on. They're tearing down our statues. They're tearing down our history. They don't want history anymore. They say, We're not, we don't want history. We want to make history, is what you hear a lot of these protesters saying. They want to forget about the men and the women who fought for our freedom, the, the, the ones that, that have actually sacrificed their lives for, uh, for our freedom here in this country. And they're going back and they're tearing down statues of people and they don't even know what they're fighting for anymore. Uh, I, I kind of laughed. The Black Lives Matters people even went and uh, tore down a statue of Frederick Douglass. If you all know anything about Frederick Douglass, he was a... Abolition, a slavery abolitionist. He was one that fought for the black. He was a black man who fought to try to free slaves during the slavery. They tore down his statue and desecrated it. So they don't even know what they're fighting for anymore. And if you look at this psalm, you're going to find that David was kind of in the same type of position here that we are today. Of course, this is a psalm of David. He was a subject of King Saul at this time. He was in King Saul's court. Saul was starting to become annoyed with David's popularity. Of course, you know David had done something that nobody else in Israel would do. What had he done? He had slayed Goliath, hadn't he? And David had become a hero. And and also not only that, he was being shown favored by God because he'd already been told that he was going to be the next king. Saul knew all these things. Saul knew all about that. But Saul had not got to the point to where he tried to kill him yet. Remember Saul threw the javelin and tried to kill him? Hadn't got to that point yet. 
But David, and I've got here Saul's advisors, which were actually Saul's advisors, try to get David to flee. If you notice there in the first verse, it says, it says, in the Lord put I my trust. And then he says, how say ye to my soul, flee as a bird to your mountain. Or to, to your mountain. See, his advisors had told him that he needed to go ahead and to just run away from Saul. Get away from Saul. Go back home to where you live. Get away from all this mess. But the little thing that they didn't really... I mean, the, the thing that they were trying to get David to do is to go ahead and flee because if David flee and he was a subject of the king, guess what that gave Paul permission to do? Go after him and to kill him. So it goes on here and David puts his trust in the Lord alone, as you can see that. Though he sees total chaos in the government and the nation and the religious things that were going on, he saw total chaos of everything that was going on. Kinds of reminds us today, right? What's going on here? And it says, our time is much like David's time, so we must stand like he stood. And if you read like, and you go on down, you read in verses 4 through 7, David put his trust in God. He said, God sees everything that's going on. And so he put his trust in God. So as we go on and we advanced here, there's some things that we are suffering from. First of all, our spiritual heritage is, is suffering. Jeremiah 6.16 says, Thus saith the Lord, Stand ye in the ways, and see, and ask for the old paths, where is the good way, and walk therein, and ye shall find rest for your souls. You notice those little dots right there? I want you to pay attention to those dots. Lord, I've got spiritual heritage here. Some things I put up here that we are suffering in is one is our message is being weakened. How many translations of the Bible do, you, do we have now? Did you know that back before the 1900s there was only one or two translations of the Bible? And now there's over 70 or 80 different translations of God's Word. It's being weakened. They're taking the virgin birth out. They're changing it to gender-friendly. I even saw one on there, I saw one on there uh, the other day, the gay-friendly Bible. Saw it on eBay the other day. All kinds of different versions. The message is being weakened. What they're doing is, is they're making the Word of God fit what they believe rather than what God says. Our music is becoming worldly, even in some of our churches. You want to you hear some worldly music? You can find it in some churches. Even some churches around here, you can find some worldly music. I'm not, I mean, I'm being honest. I thank God for, for, the, for, for Bible Baptist Church that, th that stays true to God's Word in, in music. And if you, don't, if you don't believe me, anything that gives your foot a beat and wants it to dance is, got, is ungodly music. Our witness has become wanting. How many people do you see witnessing anymore? Not very many. Not many people go door to door. Not very many people witness to people at work. Most of the time, we're cowards. We're afraid to say anything. We have let the minorities become the main voices, and we cower when we hear them around us. We're afraid to say anything about what God's Word says in front of them. We're afraid to witness to them. Am I right? 
I don't believe that way. Listen, please don't talk that way. I'm a Christian. How many people do you hear, do you hear say that at work anymore? Not very many. Not only that, remember I told you to play, I told you to uh, notice those little dots? That's the end of that verse. What did Israel say? We will not walk there in. That was their answer to God. That was, their, that was their answer to Jeremiah. We're not going to walk that way. Proverbs 3, 5, and 6, we know this verse very well. Trust in the Lord with all thine heart, and lead not to thine own understanding. In all thy ways acknowledge him, and he shall direct thy paths. How much trust do we have in God anymore? How much trust do we, do we really put into him? Not only that, our national heritage is being destroyed. It's Isaiah 60, 12 says, For the nation and kingdom that will not serve thee shall perish, yea, those nations shall be utterly wasted. Do you think God may be taking his hand off of America a little bit? I hope and pray not. Proverbs 14, 34 says, Righteousness exalteth the nations, but sin is a reproach to any people. So what in the world is happening? Our morals are gone. Our language is obscene. Our lives are on edge. Our church is under persecution. You can say, well, it's not here. Hey, go out to California and go, try to go to church. Hey, the mayor of San Francisco this week said that people can meet and go to church out there inside, but only one person at a time. I guess the preacher's by himself. Evil has become brazen and open. People are doing things now that you never ever expected, that they used to do in the dark, but they're doing them openly now. Good is bad and bad is good. People don't even know what they're fighting for. It's chaos. Like I said, they're tearing down statues of their own heroes or people that they're supposed to be fighting for. Government acts like preschoolers. And I don't know if you watched... The debate last night, but I was kind of disappointed. It looked like a bunch of preschoolers. Now, I know how I'm for, and you may be for somebody else or whatever, but it still disgusted me the way that the debate went last night because they were name-calling and doing everything else. And I didn't hear about it any much about it, the issues. It was like a bunch of preschoolers. And you know what I think? I think these other countries were sitting back laughing. Law enforcement is the enemy. All these things we can say is what's happening now. So what did our forefathers say about our heritage? John Adams said our Constitution was made only for moral and religious people. It is wholly inadequate to the government of any other. Thomas Jefferson said the reason that Christianity is the best friend of government is because Christianity is the only religion that changes the heart. George Washington said, let us with caution indulge the supposition that morality can be maintained without religion. Reason and experience both forbid us to expect that national morality can prevail in exclusion of religious principle. Why are they trying to tear these men's statues down? Why are they trying to get rid of these men in this history? 
How about Ronald Reagan? I think he was the best president since I've been alive. I didn't even get to vote for him. I was just 10 years old. It says, if we ever forget that we are one nation under God, then we will be a nation gone under. Hey, they're trying to get it out of our Pledge of Allegiance, aren't they? One nation under God with liberty and justice for all. Here's Thomas Jefferson again. And for many of y'all that know Thomas Jefferson, Thomas Jefferson probably was not a Christian at all. May have been, may have not. Him and Ben Franklin were, were, uh, were supposedly deist. But here's one of his comments. He says, I tremble for my country when I reflect that God is just, that His justice cannot sleep forever. Kind of made me shake when I read that comment. But we do have hope. Just like Solomon had hope when he built the temple. He said, in 2 Chronicles 7.14 says, If my people which are called by my name shall humble themselves and pray and seek my face and turn from their wicked ways, then I hear from heaven and will forgive their sin and will hear their land. I want you to notice two important words there. My people. God's not talking about the Black Lives Matter or Antifa or the Democrats or the people that are in Congress. He's talking about the people that are called by His name. So we can point our fingers all we want to at everybody else. But we better be doing some looking inside first. Because when we start to look inside, we'll find that we need to do some changes in our own lives. Hey, where do you stand? Not only that, our homes are being destroyed. We can no longer trust our educational system and our government to stand up for our religious rights or, our faith for, or, or the faith of our children. These institutions removed all evidence of Christianity from our history and replaced it with liberalism, humanism, and atheism. Thank God for those few teachers and educators who have stood true to God's word through these changes and remained strong in the battle. And if you're a teacher and, you, and you're uh, working in these systems, I thank you so much if you stand up for God's word and what you do. I know it's hard for, for you to do what you do. But we must not rely on those fused teachers or the church to set the standard. Remember what I said? Or the church to set the standard. It must start at home. We must guard against dangers being taught such as below. Here's some of the quotes of the people that the, the paper is, the, the, the media is putting out. Some of the top, top quote people that they're putting out. How about... Uh, this lady here, Linda Gordon, she's a top feminist woman that's being put out. The nuclear family must be destroyed. Nuclear family is husband, wife. It says the nuclear family must be destroyed and people must find better ways of living together. Whatever is ultimate meaning, the breakup of families is now an objectively revolutionary process. Families have supported oppression by separating people into small, isolated units and unable to join together to fight for common interests. 
That's one of your top feminists. She wants to do away with men. That's fine. You can do away with men all you want to, but soon there ain't going to be no women either. Here's a quote from Black Lives Matter. This quote was removed from their What We Believe page about three weeks ago. You know why? They lost 12% of their followers when they started reading what they, what they believe. Black Lives Matter is uh, run by three lesbian women. That's what the, what the, 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 who headed it up, started it. It says, we disrupt the Western prescribed nuclear family structure requirement by supporting each other as extended families and villages that collectively care for one another, especially our children, to the degree that mothers, parents, and children are comfortable. One of those objectives reads, the word father is deliberately excluded, replaced by the gender neutral parents, despite already naming mothers as pillars of the family. Hey, do you want to know why the black society is in such trouble now, the black race is in such trouble now? Over 72% of them are fatherless. There's no fathers in the home. They're already in trouble. And if they do this, it's going to be even worse. The complete destruction of traditional marriage and the nuclear family is the revolutionary or utopian goal of feminism. Hey, it's not just... What, feminism is what's behind all this, a lot of this stuff. And it's being taught in our schools, and it's being taught... Uh, in our papers and everywhere we go, it's behind a lot of this stuff that's going on. We need to be careful of that. And let me say this, men, you need to be men, and women be women, and teach your children to be men and women. According to the CDC, and I just went ahead and added this in here, divorce rate in the United States is 3.2%, or 32 people out of 1,000 people get divorced. I think it's higher than that, but... The rate decreased by 18% between 2008 and 2016. This is all I could get. But the Pew Research Center said that the number of cohabiting partners has increased 29% since 2007. So, we're not getting divorced anymore. We're just living together. And if we don't like who we live together, we'll just go live together with somebody else. But what does God say? It's adultery, Right? It's wrong. Divorce is wrong unless it's on biblical grounds. And adultery is wrong on all grounds. Right? Got this quote from a guy named Patrick Swink. He says, a Christian home is never defined by what the children are doing. Here it goes. It is defined by what the parents are doing. Does that hit home for us a little bit? Your child can read the Bible every day, listen only to Christian music, watch only Christian videos, read every missionary biography in the library, know a zillion memory verses, have only Christian friends, and never miss Sunday school, and yet still not live in a Christian home. Only you, their parents, can make your home a Christian home. It's the truth, ain't it? We used to go to Tabernacle. There's a little girl. 
I guess since she was knee high, uh, rode the bus. She came to every service, every time there was revival. Every time, every time there was a, the doors were open, somebody would go by and pick her up and, and bring her. And uh, as far as I know, she's still going there. But she'd, she'd always, if there was something in the youth group, she would always work and, and do things to try to, to, to win trips and stuff like that. And she'd read her Bible through every year. She'd do all these things. But her mom and dad were both druggies. She didn't live in a Christian home. Because it was a, the way her parents did. A Christian home is, in uncomplicated terms, is one in which God is alive and present in the lives of the parents. It is, it is Christian not just in name but in reality. Christ is present through His Spirit in the lives of His followers who live there. How do your kids see you? Grandparents, how do your kids see you? When they come there, do they know that the language is different? Do they know that Wednesday night's church night? Do they know Sunday morning, Sunday afternoons, or Sunday morning, Sunday night's church night? A physical house built without a foundation is destined to fall. Only a firm foundation creates a real and lasting home. In the same way, Christ is the foundation of a Christian home. Just because Christian lives inside a house does not mean that Christ is in that home. Jesus ended his Sermon on the Mount with a parable of a wise man who built his house on the rock. His house stood against the wind and the flood, but the house built on the sand fell. And as a parent, you must choose to build your house, your family, on the rock of Christ and His Word if you want to build a Christian home that will stand for God, both literally and figuratively. Hey, we're going to have to decide to go back and see some of the things that are in our home and decide whether they're godly or not and whether we need to take them out of our home. Reminds me of the children's song. Oh, be careful, little eyes, what you see. Oh, be careful, little ears, what you hear. Oh, be careful, little mouth, what you say. Oh, be careful, little hands, what you do. Oh, be careful, little feet, where you go. They'll do what you do. They'll say what you say. Won't they, Patsy? Patsy's been getting on uh, Lily for, for saying God. And last week when I was preaching, I mentioned the word God two or three times. And I was told that she looked over to her mom and said, He said it. He's in trouble. <laughs> so I ruined everything that she was trying to teach. So you might say, now what? I'm discouraged. I'm disgraced. I mean, I'm distressed. I'm disgraced. What about my kids, my grandkids, and my great grandchildren? What do I tell them? What about my plans? What can we do, or can we do anything? I put these two, three things on there. First, first thing you can do is say to them, say to them whose side you're on. Joshua twenty four fifteen says. And if it seem evil unto you to serve the Lord, 
Choose this day whom ye will serve, whether the gods which your fathers served that were on the other side of the flood, or the gods of the Amorites and in whose land ye dwell. But as for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. Make up your mind who you're going to serve. Come to church. Make church a priority. Make up your mind. Don't be wishy-washy. One Sunday it's church. Next Sunday it's Dollywood. Be faithful. That's what our pastor preaches all the time. Be faithful. Hey, you can go to Dollywood the other six days of the or, or six days of the week, but be at church when church time comes. So show, say to them whose side you're on. We're standing on the Lord's side. We're not going to have those things going on in our house. Show to them whose side you're on. If you remember, Moses came off the mountain and all the things that the Israelites had been doing uh, was against God, the golden calf and all that stuff had happened. In Exodus 32, 26, then Moses stood in the gate of the camp and said, Who is on the Lord's side? Let him come unto me. And all the sons of Levi gathered themselves together unto him. Maybe that's what we need to do. Maybe we need to come back to him. Tell him we're back on his side. Hey, that's the winning side anyhow. Which side do you want to be on? I don't want to be a loser. Do you want to be a loser? Tell them whose side you're on. And stand fast to show whose side you're on. Of course, we know these verses here. And I won't read them all. But I want you to notice how many times just through this, in Ephesians chapter 6, where it talks about the armor of God, notice how many times the word stands in there. To stand, withstand, stand, to stand. Just in those verses. And it tells us how we're to stand. How to take on those different pieces of the armor and to stand. God doesn't leave us with no instructions on how we're to do it. But you know what? The way that we take on those pieces of armor is by staying in His book. Am I right? How do you know that you know that you know you're saved? Stay in His book. Most people that doubt their salvation, you ask them, say, have you been reading your Bible? No. I haven't been reading my Bible. Well, have you been praying? No. I haven't been praying. We're not spending any time with them. First thing I want you to, re to realize, though, is that we can build on Christ. In the Lord... Put I my trust. That's what David said there in the first verse. In the Lord put I my trust. Psalms 11, 4 through 7. Notice what he followed that with. All those things that happened after that, after they told David to flee, and he was talking about how the wicked bend their bow and how they make ready for the arrow, and they were ready. He knew what they were going to do. They were going to try to kill him. They knew that they were out after him and all those things, but he was going to stand tall and stand there and stuff. But then he came back and he tells them, he said, the Lord is in his holy temple. He says, the Lord is in heaven. His eyes behold, his eyelids try the children of men. He's saying, you may be ready to do this to me, but my God is watching you. And whatever happens to me, he's got his eyes on you. 
We can say the same thing today. Psalms 18.2 says, The Lord is my rock and my fortress and my deliverer, my God, my strength, in whom will I trust, my buckler and the horn of my salvation and my high tower. Go back if you can. If you can ever go through and look at some of these things and, and, and study them out, what they mean and some of these things that they mean, you'll be amazed at what just all those things mean. Psalm 62.6 says, He only is my rock and my salvation. He is my defense. I shall not be moved. And what that's talking about is taking a stand. That's what we're talking about here today. So to build on Christ, we need to stay in the book. We need to obey the book. We need to apply the book. And we need to share the book. Really, probably the last one, it's an urgent call to share the book. Because time is getting shorter. If you've got a lost loved one in your family and you truly love them, you better be sharing the book. To build on Christ, we need to be faithful in our daily devotions. If you have family or, or young children in your family or if it's just you and your wife, have uh, family devotions. Church, and you notice I wrote out there all services. Now I'm not saying, I'm not saying that you can't miss if you're sick. We, if you're sick, we want you to stay home. And if you're if you're working, we understand they understand that. And if you you know, and if you're on vacation, that's fine too. But every service that you're available to be here, be here. Not only is it an encouragement to 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 other people, it's an encouragement to our pastor to see you here. It lifts him up. And God will give you something out of being here. Kids program, Awanas. I guarantee you that the, the, that the, the kids in Awanas probably learn more Bible verses in one year of Awanas than, than most of us learn in here in a whole year. Wouldn't you agree with that, Josh? They put us to shame, wouldn't they? Why is it then when we get out of Awanas and stuff, we quit learning Bible verses? We quit studying God's Word? And we use the excuse, I'm just too old to learn that stuff anymore. God help us. Ministries, be faithful to your ministries. Be faithful to giving. Every time I give God more, He gives me more back. Anybody else attest to that? Praying, be faithful in your praying. And good music. I'm going to throw in a thing for, uh, for uh, Brother Ellison's granddaughter. She's got a CD. She's not said anything about it, but she has a CD. It's got good music on it. If you need some good music, See the Ellisons or see, uh, see her granddaughter Sunday. But I want you to notice here, look at David's convictions. Build on your convictions. You can look here and see what David's convictions were in these verses. His trust. He had, he had a conviction of trust. He was upright in heart. He was righteous. 
He was righteous and upright. That was his convictions. We're going to build on our convictions. These ought to be some of our convictions that we have here. Of course, this list over here you can't see is uh, the Ten Commandments. You can't, can't read it very well. Uh, Bible version, that ought to be a conviction that we have here. The version that we use, the King James Version. Or we ought to have a conviction about prayer, about abortion. It is murder. Uh, freedom of worship, we ought to have a conviction about that, that we ought to be able to come and worship freely. But the thing about this is, most Christians believe, most Christians live on preference rather than convictions. Now you're going to, want, you're going to say, where are you going with this, Brother Jared? This is actually a U.S. Supreme Court case, and I'm going to show you something. And this will scare you a little bit. A preference is a greater liking for one alternative over another or others. I think prefer. A conviction is a, f a firmly held belief or opinion, the quality of showing that one is firmly convinced of what one believes or says. So as the saying goes, if you talk the talk, you walk the walk. All right, here we go. Interesting what the U.S. legal guidelines say about religious convictions. Now this, you say, when did this happen? 1972. So we're talking over 40 years ago. It says these definitions were forced when an Amish farmer, because it was against his religious convictions, refused to send his children to Wisconsin public schools. Wisconsin sued him twice, both times he lost facing jail and the, and the possible loss of his children to a state-assigned foster home. Sounds like today, don't it? This is in 72. Appealing to the U.S. Supreme Court as his last resort, he was told that the First Amendment protected his religious convictions and that he did not have to send his children to public school. So he won in 1972. But what happened is the, the Supreme Court didn't leave it at that. I'm just paraphrasing. In fact, they spelled out clearly what a conviction, what a conviction is. In this 1972 decision, the court established the guidelines against which similar and subsequent cases would be judged before giving those guidelines. The court laid down two principles regarding persons who claim to hold religious beliefs. If you have to go to court over this for your children or your grandchildren, this is what they're going to go by. First, the court stated that one cannot hold a belief unless one can somehow describe that belief. 1 Peter 3.15 says, But sanctify the Lord God in your hearts and be ready always to give an answer to every man that asketh you a reason of the hope that is in you with the meekness and fear. So if they come and they ask you, you're going to have to be able to explain it. You're going to have to have an answer why you believe that way. Though the court does not ask for eloquent, highly organized, and systematical testimony such as a teacher should give, it will not accept hunches, feelings, or it seems to me testimony either. It also will not say that we also will not accept, well, that's the way my church believes. By the way, this is the way our church believes. Constitutions and bylaws. If you don't have a copy, we can get them one, can't we, Denver? If you don't know what we believe, you need one anyhow. Okay? All right. Said the court wants a witness to show thoughtful consideration of his beliefs. Secondly, but more important, the court requires that one show knowledge of his beliefs. The court maintains that belief must be individually and personally, individually 
and personally held. Do you hear that? Your conviction must be individually and personally held. You know what reminded me of that? What's salvation? Individually and personally. Right? With Christ. I can't get to heaven on Russ. Russ can't get to heaven on Patricia, can he? It's an individual thing. So that's what the Supreme Court's doing. In 72, they were kind of following biblical guidelines, right? There it went on and explained about Abraham, where they said to Abraham, he's our father, and Jesus saying to them, if you were Abraham's children, you would do the works of Abraham, but now you seek to kill me, a man that hath told you the truth, which I heard of God, this is not Abraham. It says, the court views such people as hiding behind a title. Christ's opponents said, I am a son of Abraham. Today one would say, I am a Christian. How many of y'all hear that all the time? Everywhere you go. I guarantee if you went out here and you knocked on every door, everybody would say, I'm a Christian. Right? You men that go visit, you hear that all the time? I'm a Christian. Where you go to church? Well, we're not going nowhere, not right now. The church says this and the church says that. The court says, fine, now tell me what that means to you. Hey, we got to know what we believe. Wait a minute. Not we. You got to know what you believe. It's not a we thing anymore. Romans 14.10 and 2 Corinthians 5.10, Paul writes, We shall stand before the judgment seat of Christ. Hey, what that's telling us is it's going to be a one-on-one thing there too, right? When we stand before the Lord. It says, though, following through this with, the, with this principle, the Supreme Court requires that one's beliefs be personally held. It is a valid guideline. From those two general guidelines, the court then established that no matter who we are, prince or pauper, what one religion is, Christianity, Judaism, Islam, Hinduism, no matter what the religion is, what our belief structure is, or what individual beliefs are, beliefs fall into one or two, of two categories. Beliefs are either convictions or preferences. These terms must be defined further in U.S. courts. Only convictions are protected by by the Constitution. It may be surprising how the Supreme Court defines a preference. The court has ruled if you require other people to stand with you before you stand, your beliefs are preferences. You're not going to be able to call on the preacher to come with you. If you go to that court. Oh, he may be there for support, but they're not going to care about what he believes. They're going to ask you what you believe. The court court says there on the second point, we want to see your faith in action. If the Bible requires something, it is God-ordered. If it is God-ordered, it should be a conviction. If it is a conviction and God-ordered not to do it would be a sin. Disobedience to God, before we state that, what we believe is a conviction, we must be prepared to say that its opposite is a sin. And I have the little thing down there if y'all want to read where I got some of that stuff from. Build on commitment. This is my last point. Nevertheless, the foundation of God standeth sure, having this seal. The Lord knoweth them that are His, and let everyone that nameth the name of Christ 
depart from iniquity. Psalms 37, 5 and 6. Commit thy way unto the Lord. Trust also in Him, and He shall bring it to pass. And He shall bring forth thy righteousness as light, and the judgment as the noonday. Number one, make God your priority. Remember when no one else has your back, God does. Y'all ever get to that feeling in your life before when you don't think nobody, nobody else cares? He's the reason that you live and breathe each day. He loves you so much and always wants what's best for you. Why not return the favor and devote yourself to Him, pleasing Him? Spend quality time with Him each day through prayer and studying the Holy Bible. Quickly obey Him when you know that He wants you to do something. You will find great pleasure in your life when you know that you're pleasing Him. Include Him in everything you do. Everything you do. Include Him. Always remember that He loves spending time with you. Talk to Him often. Share everything with Him after all. He is your best friend. Remember it says, He's a friend that sticketh closer than a brother. Here was a big one. Refuse, refuse to compromise. I'm going to give you an example. My family, or Tammy's family, and well, they're my family too, I guess, since I married into it, but uh, they used to want to have uh, birthday parties on Sundays. Sunday afternoons, Sunday evenings, things like that. And they would always get mad at me and Tammy because it was church time. Well, you can miss this one Sunday. You can miss it for this. And what do they want me to do? Compromise. Well, it's mom's 50th birthday party or 60th birthday party. You can miss for that. No. It's Sunday night church. Can we move it to a Saturday? No, we got other stuff to do on Saturday. She's one of five. So she, we lost out a lot of times when it came to moving it. They wanted us to compromise. They weren't all going to church at the time. They, were, they, saw, they had other priorities. But one thing about it, we never compromised. I've seen my son, through us doing that, have his priorities set to where he doesn't compromise in the future. It makes a difference when, when your kids watch. But it says, refuse to compromise. Make a stand for righteousness. Learn to love what God loves. And here's a big one. Hate what he hates. I know that word hate. We all say, oh, don't ever say the word hate. Hey, you should hate one thing. Sin. And there's a lot of it out there. Isn't there? A lot of different things that are sin. You ought to hate adultery. You ought to hate lying. Right? You ought to hate missing church. Am I right? Don't get into erroneous mindset and proclaim worldly wisdom as truth. That doesn't even come close to lining up with what the Word of God says. Don't listen to all this stuff that's going on in the news and all this stuff. Stay in the Word of God. Don't yield to negative peer pressure. Hey, if you got wrong friends, and we can do it even as Christians, have wrong friends, get, find you some new friends. Some of the best friends you'll ever have will be right here at church. Am I right? Be willing to stand your ground regarding what you, might, you know is right. 
You may feel alone if everyone else is in unison about a particular matter and you refuse to side with them. Just know that God is with you and He is pleased when you obey His way of doing things. These are fam- there, there's a familiar quote where to be put to memory which says, You and God are the majority. Reject interference. Make a strong resolve with your, within yourself that nothing or no one will come between your relationship with God. And let me even say this, even your wife, even your spouse. When you know that he's the most important person in your life, then you will quickly recognize things that try to take your focus and allegiance away from the King of Kings. If you're going to have your devotions or whatever, go to your spouse and say, hey, I'm going to go spend some time with the Lord. Give me 30 or 40 minutes. Unless it's an emergency, don't interrupt me. When you're tempted to leave the Lord out of a certain situation in your life, an immediate red flag should go up, letting you know that you're getting off track. The enemy loves to direct our attention away from God. He uses people and situations to distract us from living a committed lifestyle unto God. This can be quickly changed by repenting, rebuking the enemy, and putting our focus right back on the Lord. All right, I've got this last one here. This here is a little thing that, since we have the ball fields over here, and I'm glad, I'm glad the ball season's over mostly. Uh, we talk about commitments and different things like that. We've got to be careful as Christian parents with our kids and our grandkids when it comes to sports and other things. These ball fields over here are packed on Sundays. And I guarantee you if we went over and we talked to them, most of them would say, we're Christians and we attend certain churches. What I'm saying all that for is, is a lot of those people say, yeah, I'm a committed Christian. I'm, I'm committed. But they're committed to the wrong thing. They're committed to their children playing ball rather than going to church. You say, how do you know, Brother Jerry? They're over there than over, rather than being over here. Am I right? I'm right. And it, it can easily be that way for us too. So that's why I say this. We must be careful as Christians if we have the wrong commitments. Because they will get in front of our convictions and cause us to be on a shaky foundation. Where we were once wise upon the rock, we become foolish and weak because we now have other preferences. It don't take much of spending every Sunday on the ball field to get weak about going back to church. Our convictions are gone because we are committed to other things. Excuses become the norm, and we are more apt to, t- to accept things we never would before. How many times have you heard people say, well, I'd have never thought it went that far. I never thought we got out of church. Soon we find ourselves wondering how we got where we are in the, in the, in the, situation, the situation we are in. We must realize the rock, which is Christ, never moved but we did. 
He was always here. If you find yourself here now, where your commitments are in front of your convictions, come back to Christ. He is waiting to rebuild your heritage. He's waiting to renew your home. And He's ready to restore your hope. Let's pray. Father, we thank You for this day. I thank You for Your goodness and Your mercy and Your grace. Dear Lord, I pray for the people of Bible Baptist Church. And I ask, dear God, that You just might be with them and watch over them and take care of them. I ask now, dear Lord, that You might be with the remaining of the services. Lord, I pray for those that will be in our prayer request, that You might bless them. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.